Let's pray. Our God, it is good to be in your house this morning. It is good to sing your praises and to lift our voices uh, in prayer to you. Not only uh, praying our, our supplication, but Lord, even being able to sing your or, or pray your praises and thanksgiving. God, you are a good God. And we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, uh, that you have given it to us in a language, in a way that we can understand. Father, and even so practical and so down to earth that uh, we, we see uh, how these things uh, apply to our lives. But Lord, it is one thing to know these things. It is another thing to be able to live these things. And we pray that even now as we hear your word, that your spirit would work in our hearts, not only to know these things, but to will and to want to do these things. Uh, looking to you, O oh God. Uh, to uh, do a mighty and a great work in our lives. We thank you and pray this in your name, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So today we come to a, a new series. I'm going from Jonah to James. And uh, for many believers, the book of James is a very loved book. It's a lot like the book of Psalms. There's just certain books it seems like uh, every Christian or most every Christian uh, really enjoys uh, to read and they appreciate very much. And the book of James seems to be one of those books. And one of the reasons, I think, is because it's so practical, so down to earth. It uh, ex exhortations to godly living very much sort of hit us right where we live. As James talks about trials, he talks about poverty and riches and uh, even favoritism that we might be tempted to have or uh, our struggle with our tongues, or struggle with worldliness, or boasting, uh, what it means to plan for the future prayer. You know, the list just goes on and on and on. And yet James's candor and clarity uh, sort of creates uh, within us maybe some tension. We, we love this book very much, and yet in one sense it's sort of a very painful book, as James is very uh, clear and very precise in his applications of these truths to our lives. And, and that's because James appears to be a man who had a passion for Christian integrity. You know, this is evident in the way that James instructs his audience in what it means to live out the Christian faith. The book of James is, is filled with commands. Now, these are not suggestions. These are commands. Do this. Don't do this. As a matter of fact, there's like 108 verses in the book of James. It's a rather short book. If you sit down and read it, it takes maybe 20, 25 minutes for the average reader to read it. But of those 108 verses, 59 of those verses contain commands. So for every two verses, one verse has a, a command. And uh, so it is uh, very very uh, strong and forceful in some ways. Now, I, I will say this. It, it is really interesting because as you look at the book of James, you know, Paul also has commands, but he sort of backs up his commands with the theology that comes behind that. And James doesn't do that so much. Now, it doesn't mean, and I don't want you to misunderstand this, it doesn't mean that there's not theology behind what James said. As a matter of fact, if you take and you look at Jesus' teachings, particularly from the Sermon on the Mount, but not only from that, but if you look at Jesus' teaching and then lay out beside that James' teaching, you'll see a lot of similarities. Let me share with you just, just a couple, sort of in a list format. You know, just the whole idea of, of love your neighbor as being a great command. We see that in James chapter 2, 
verse 8, but also in Matthew 22, 39, we see the idea that exalting, uh, uh, that, um, that we ought not to exalt ourselves, but be humble. In James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, and Matthew 23, 12, uh, he talks about the idea of not judging others. James 4, 11 and 12, and Matthew 7, 15, that we are to rejoice in trials. Or we are to be doers and not just hearers of the word. And it just goes on and on and on. And we, we see those teachings both in Christ's teaching, but also in James' teaching as well. So just understand that while James doesn't get into a lot of uh, theological truths, like maybe the Apostle Paul does, it doesn't mean that it's not there in his mind uh, as he is giving these commands. So, so there's a sense in which James has a, a passion for Christian integrity, but we also see that passion for Christian integrity in, in his critics and um, his criticism of false piety or false godliness. You might call it spiritual inconsistency or Christian compromise. There's a lot of different phrases. I mean, I think even maybe the best is just to talk about hypocrisy in the life of the church. James just comes at that with full force. And, uh, and he was a man who spurred the church on, as you would say, to, to walk the talk, as the phrase used to be said. I guess now we would say he, he'd spur us on to authentic Christianity. Is that the, the new phrase? I don't know. But uh, anyway, James would not tolerate in the church a hollow profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, those who profess Christ, he expected them to walk and to live out their faith uh, before him. And that's because James is passionately concerned to see the life of the Christian faith lived out with godly integrity and a commitment to God's people. So James is devastating to hypocrisy, sort of in the same way that his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was. And yet, I would say this as well, like the Lord Jesus Christ, who was strongly opposed to hypocrisy, there's also a, a, a tenderness, there's a, a gentleness in James that comes out of uh, continually throughout this book. You see him as being a man who's a shepherd over the flock, over this church. He just, he just loved these people that he was talking to. And he would refer to them over and over and over as my brothers or, or my beloved brothers. You see that in James chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Or even down at verse 16 of chapter 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And you know, just about couple times in each chapter he's making a reference in some way or another to that the congregation that he loves so much. And so James writes to his readers who are undergoing these sufferings and these trials with the precision and yet the empathy of a loving shepherd. And, and you see that in chapter 1 verses 2 through, through 18 as he talks to them. And he also comes to them with a sense of humility as well. If you look at chapter 1 verse 1 that we read this morning, you know, it describes James as a servant. As a servant. Not as someone who's lording it over these people, but someone who is serving Christ in his church. And so this man who is so ruthless on hypocrisy is also gentle and kind, and he's burdened about the weaknesses of the struggles of believers. And so you see in his life the grace that is characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ, ruthless towards sin, but tender 
uh, and patient towards God's people, particularly those who are struggling. And it sort of reminds me, actually, I, I pull this out every once in a while. This is a, a little uh, coin, if you will. It's not really a coin. It's just a piece of metal with words on two sides. But I was given this when I was in seminary by one of my professors. And, and on one of the sides, it says, tough-minded, okay? And on this other side, it says, tender-hearted. And I remember when my professor stood up before us and he told us, he said, always be tough-minded towards Satan and sin. Always be tough-minded towards Satan and sin. But always be tender-hearted towards your people, and their struggles. And he said, and make sure you never get those two mixed up. Never be tough-minded towards your people and never be tender-hearted towards Satan or sin. And I just, I remember that. And like I said, I keep that coin in a place that I pull it out every once in a while and it just sort of reminds me as a pastor, you know, how I am to, to, to shepherd you is the congregation. And, and it's very much, this is very much the attitude that James had towards the congregation that he has, that there was a tough-mindedness towards hypocrisy and a tender-heartedness towards his people and their struggle. And so it's, uh, this book is sort of refreshing in one sense, and yet it is uh, painfully convicting all at the, the same time as, as a book. And, and as we look at the, the book of James, we sort of see that the theme that he has is uh, a faith that works. And that's why I've entitled this sermon series, James, uh, A Living Faith, because I believe that that's what James is talking about, is, is what a living faith looks like. Or in other words, what it means to live a consistent Christian life is maybe another way that we might put that. And so today I want us to look at this opening verse of James that we've already read. And, and I, I want us to look at really the three parts of this first verse. He talks about the uh, the author, the person who wrote it, but he also talks about his his view of Christ, of God and Christ, and also who the audience is. But as we as we look at this this morning, I want to sort of deal with it in reverse order. We're going to talk about the readers first, and then his view of Christ, and then about James himself. Now. Uh, we're going to talk more about who James is and, and everything and, and what that has to do uh, to us today. But I do want to mention in starting of who this James is, because there were several James in the New Testament. Actually, there was about four. Some say three, but, you know, four. But for the most part, there were two that sort of are eliminated as possibilities from this list and, and of, of possibilities of, of being an author of this letter just because they were not known hardly at all. Um, they just are briefly mentioned in Scripture. And yet the James that is mentioned here evidently must have been known by the church because all he says about himself is he's James. He doesn't say James the son of or James the apostle or, or anything like that. He just says James. And, you know, he says that in such a way that it's like you're expected to know who he is. And there's only really a couple of men like that. One is the Apostle James. Now, do you remember sort of the, the trio, the holy trio, Peter, James, and John? Okay, it's that James that I'm talking about um, that could have possibly been an author of this. The, the problem with that is, is that we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that James was put to death, that, uh, that he was killed 
uh, early on. And so, it, you know, it's, it is a very slim possibility, but not very likely that he was the author. The other James that is even uh, more possibility, and, and I would say is the one that was the author of James, is the half-brother of Jesus. And, and I say that for, for several reasons. One, you know, James was, uh, James was, uh, you read in Acts chapter 15, was a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And so he's someone who had become deeply loved and very prominent. He sort of uh, oversaw the, the council that took place in Acts 15. Uh, also, if you look at other places that the Bible talks about James, the brother of Jesus, uh, the reference is simply to James. That You can look in Acts 12, 17 or 15, 13 or 21, 18 or in a minute we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5, 7. And all of those just simply refer to him as James. And so, um, you know, James, the brother of Jesus is uh, who I believe is is written this book, and and that's confirmed uh, through church history as well, and pretty much undisputed. But uh, as we as we have that in mind, then let's look at those that he wrote to. Who? What was this church like? Who were these people that he wrote to? Well, it just simply says James to the twelve tribes in the dispersions. Now, some of your translations may say the dysporia, you know, but either way. It really means the same thing. And it's really sort of a, a technical term, that dispersion. It refers to the scattering of the Jews outside of ancient Palestine after the Babylonian exile. And so there was these Jews that were spread out all over the known world at that time. And that's why when the Apostle Paul went and he preached, it would say that he would go to, to this country or that country or this city or that village. And when he would go into that town, where would he go? He would go to the synagogue. Because there was a group of Jews that were there and they had built a synagogue. And so he could go and he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and these Jews that, that lived in these various outlying areas in these synagogues uh, very much saw themselves a part of the worship of Jerusalem. You know that the, the true temple worship was in Jerusalem where the temple was. And they saw themselves as sort of outpost you know, and sort of uh, connected as they gathered to worship, you know, on uh, the, the Sabbath, they would see themselves as little outposts of the worship in Jerusalem. And, and, you know, and some would even argue that James sort of has some allusions to Hebraic things like in chapter 2, verse 2, it talks about the assembly for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. That word for assembly is the same Greek word for synagogue. And so some want to argue that it was purely a, a Jewish audience that James was writing to. And others, though, would argue and say, well, no, not really. I mean, the reality is, is this time, you know, Christians were sort of mixed, Jews and Gentiles. And, uh, you know, um, and so he was writing to both. Uh, honestly, brothers and sisters, I don't know that it really matters. The reality is, is that he is writing to the church and it's a church that I think that you and I very much can relate to. If we, if we look at this letter, we just see some of the things that are, are characteristic of this church, that they experience significant trials, as we said in chapter 1, verse 2 and following, that there was serious oppression uh, for these believers. They didn't really get along so well in the culture in which they were. They were persecuted for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they, some were claiming to have faith 
But as you looked at their life, there was little evidence of that faith. There wasn't much personal holiness as we see in, in chapter 1, verses uh, 22 through 25, even in chapter 4. Um, there was also a sense in which in the church, there, the poor and um, and others were uh, marginalized. They weren't really cared for. They weren't really loved and, and respected. We see that in chapter 1, chapter 2, uh, particularly in verses uh, 1 through 13 and, uh, well, 14 through 26. So a lot in chapter 2, we see that sense in which uh, those that were sort of on the fringes were not really uh, cared for. And the congregation also had people in it that were somewhat quarrelsome. Not that that would ever happen here at Kirk of the Plains, but, you know, you've probably been in churches where you've seen Christians who were bickering with one another and they were more quarrelsome than really seeking peace. And we see that in chapters 3, verses 13 through chapter 4, verse 10. We also see that it talks about how to, to deal with uh, the rich, that there were those who were wealthy and those who um, seem to want to use their positions in life to, to find positions of favor within the church. And so anyway, uh, regardless of the fact, the reality is, is that this is a church that we can relate to, a, a people that, that, that we understand. And the, so the point is, is that James wrote to the Church of Jesus Christ um, as, as a people like us who are assembled by the, the Holy Spirit, drawn in to be part of his people, but not just to, to be sort of a holy huddle. There is a sense in which God also sends his people out and disperses them amongst the world. I mean, this, this word here, dispersion, is really the same word that's used in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And if you remember, in Acts 8, Stephen had just been put to death and persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and everybody left Jerusalem except for the apostles. That was interesting. So the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but everybody else was dispersed, and they went and they shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And like God dispersing the Jews, Jewish church, uh, into the surrounding area so God has scattered his people to the ends of the earth in order that they may be a testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, uh, you know, this is a beautiful picture of the church in general, but really of any church in particular that here in our worship we gather before the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as we have been set aside to come and to worship and to be a people together. And so like the Jewish synagogues, as those people gathered and they saw themselves as sort of being outposts of the worship that was going on in Jerusalem, so as we gather on the Lord's Day or Landmark Presbyterian gathers or Faith Baptist Church gathers or whatever church it is, as, as they gather together, we're in one sense sort of like outposts of the heavenly worship that the saints in glory are now worshiping the Lord as they stand before him day and night and worship him. And so we, with them, lift our voices and worship and praise to God. And we come conscious of Christ's presence with us as we gather here today. Amen? So it's good. Uh, the Lord has been good to us. But then uh, we're all going to leave. 
We're going to enjoy a meal together after the worship service, but then we're going to leave and we're going to go to our homes and our various communities surrounding Andover. And tomorrow, we're, you're going to get up and you're going to go to work. You're going to go to the office. You're going to go to a factory. You're going to go to wherever it is you work or you're going to go to school or, or if you work out of your home, you're going, to, you're going to work at home, whatever it might be. And you will see God has he has dispersed his people uh, throughout uh, this community in this area that we might go and we might be citizens of heaven and be salt and light before the world in which we live. And so God even continues to work through his people. But James also talks about his Lord in in verse one. Now notice what he says. He says, James, a servant of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, think about that for a moment. Those those words are just very commonplace for us, you know, a, you know, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is the brother of Jesus Christ who mentions his brother Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And not only that, or he refers to him as the Messiah, as he refers to him as Jesus Christ. Christ being the anointed one or the Messiah. But even more profound, James, in the same breath and the same sentence, is that he refers to God. He also refers to Jesus in parallel to him, indicating that they share the same authority and thus showing the deity of Jesus Christ. James understands that Jesus is God himself. And unless you think I'm reading too much into that text, look at chapter 2 in verse 1. And it says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then how does he describe him? The Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. And this is quite a statement for, for James to make about his brother. But really, in one sense, it was quite a statement for anybody in the first century to make. Because in that day and time, if anyone were to stand up in the first century... And say that Jesus was a Lord or a God. That's fine. Because they had many gods in the Roman culture in which they lived. But to say that Jesus was the Lord was blasphemous. And it's similar even in our culture today. Even in the United States it's becoming increasingly so. Where friends or co-workers or fellow students or neighbors are more likely to become upset if we say that Jesus Christ is the way to heaven or the way to God. You know, it's, it's okay if we say that we believe that he's the only way to God, or if we say he's one way to, to God, then that seems to be fine. But if we say that he is definitively the only way to God, then oftentimes we are viewed as arrogant and close-minded and bigoted and narrow. And brothers and sisters, it might even be that you feel that yourself as you're talking to others, that our culture has so press that idea upon us that there's some sense of narrowness in saying that Jesus Christ is the only way that even as you're sharing that and people were like well who are you to say that and you're thinking yeah who am I to say that well if it wasn't true if it was just your opinion that would be very bigoted that would be very narrow but God himself has revealed to us that Jesus Christ is the, uh, the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but through him we see that in John 14 6 and so James is saying in this opening verse that the very glory that belongs to God the Father also belongs to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, and I say that this is interesting 
as we look at all this because it comes from someone who was brought up in the same family as Jesus, someone who had seen the details of Jesus' life. Now, this is just sort of a side note, but as I talk with Christians, I don't know that we consciously hold this view, but as I talk to Christians, a lot of Christians sort of act as if Jesus was an only child. You know, and sort of think of him in terms of all the privileges and the, the characteristics of a person who had an only child. But as we look at Scripture, okay, at least what we God has revealed to us, there were at least nine people in Jesus' home. Have you ever thought about that? You have Joseph, you have Mary, you have Jesus himself, you have four brothers and at least two sisters and at least four brothers. That's what's listed in Scripture. There may have been more, I don't know. But the reality is, is that he came from a, a, a very uh, a, a larger home. And, and I'm sure that Joseph, being a, a mere carpenter, probably didn't have, you know, like a seven-bedroom house or anything like that where everybody had their own room. So this was a very intimate family. And so James grew up seeing Jesus for, or for, for knowing him for who he was. And, and most likely... You know, um, in Scripture, oftentimes those that are listed are sort of listed in terms of uh, uh, status or listed in terms of age. And if you look at Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, this is just one place, but Matthew 13, 55, um, it lists Jesus' brothers. And it says, uh, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Now, um, if someone read this, they would naturally assume that James was the oldest of those four brothers. And so the reality is, is that Jesus and James most likely were, were very close. And as James grew up, he eventually realized that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And, and not only does James have this exalted view of Jesus, but, he, um, but we also saw earlier that um, his desire was that others would know Jesus as the exalted one, that Christians would know Jesus and walk with him by faith. And so James wants others to know that Jesus as the glorious one that demands radical Christian consistency and devotion. So James addresses this sense of double-mindedness in our lives because James knows that to live in such a way, to live as a double-minded person, as someone who comes here on Sunday morning and looks good and talks the talk and all that, but yet then goes out there during the week and lives just like anybody else in the world. James knows that such a life is an affront on the glory of Jesus Christ, as we see described in Revelation. And I, I want to read this passage from Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. It's a glorious picture of the resurrected Christ. And just to think about a person who is living a hypocritical life, you know, of what an affront it would be upon the Christ that we see revealed in Scripture. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, uh, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
That was John's response to the glorified Christ. You know, just like you see Isaiah or many others as they stand in the presence of God, they are overwhelmed with who God is. And James wants to bring before us such a Christ, such a Lord. James knew that what Jesus said when he said, you call me Lord, but you don't do what I say. And in this book, James unpacks what it means to follow Christ. He shares a high and exalted view of Jesus Christ because what he wants to do is to lead us to a different approach to our trials. He wants to lead us to a different response of our temptations as we think about who our exalted Lord is. He wants us to have a different attitude towards the Word of God, a different reaction to the poor and the needy and those that are sort of on the fringes of the church. He wants us to have a different attitude towards how we use our tongues or a different attitude towards the use of our money. He wants us to do these things in light of our glorified Christ, all because of the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that's why James uh, talks about Christ. Now, it's interesting as he goes through this book, he only mentions Christ a couple of times. But just keep in mind, even though he doesn't mention Christ uh, a lot, Christ is behind everything that it is that James brings before us as he commands us to live a life of holiness and walk in righteousness. And then finally, I just want to talk about James himself. And we've already mentioned a lot of things about James, so I just want to clarify just a few other things. Um, he describes himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, James did not always believe that Jesus was the Messiah. As a matter of fact, uh, the scripture is very clear about that. If you would, turn over to John chapter 7, John 7, uh, verses 3 through 5, which says, So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea. In other words, this is his brothers talking to Jesus. That your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. Uh, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, they're giving him ministry advice. Jesus, you're not doing it right. You're sort of withdrawing from others. But you know what? If you really want to have a, a, a good ministry, maybe you should get a television ministry. Or maybe you should have a blog on the internet or something. You've got to get out there. If you don't get your name out there, people aren't going to want to know who you are. And so they're telling him how he ought to do ministry. But then it goes on in verse 5. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so there was a sense of, in which for, for many years, uh, James and his other brothers uh, did not believe that he was the Messiah. But then something happened when Jesus rose again from the dead. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that, uh, that Christ appeared to James. Let me, let me read from 1 Corinthians 15. I'm actually going to start with verse 3. Um, Paul says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then in verse 7 he says, Then he appeared to James. So, 
you know, I don't know what that appearance was like or, or what happened, but he showed himself to James for who he was. And then James, like I said, for all intended purposes, became a leader in the church at Jerusalem. And he was someone who was highly respected. And in church history, we read that James was known as James the Righteous One. It was also said that James, that he was called James the Camel Need because evidently he spent so many hours on his knees in prayer that his knees became hard like that of a camel. So it was James who wrote this letter. And notice that James doesn't describe himself as the brother of Jesus or even the half-brother of Jesus, but as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a way, James is demonstrating the very principle that he's then commanding the church to follow as later on as he talks about those who are rich and those who are wanting to be influential or those uh, and he, he talks about how they are nothing special you know that I don't care what your position is out there in life when you come in the church door you leave it at the church door we're all the same in the eyes of the Lord or those who are poor that they ought to rejoice that one day they will be exalted and James is demonstrating the very principles that he's going to command them as he's not promoting himself as he sees himself as a servant and so our relationships don't depend on our background it, they our relationships don't depend on our status you know, of who we are or who we are not, but instead that that we are uh, all the same in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for James, that attitude of being a servant is that which, um, from which Christian consistency flows. If we are going to walk the talk, if we are going to live in such a way that we're not going to be hypocritical, then it is necessary that we understand that we are servants of the Lord. And James knows that if the church that uh, and, and James knows that if the churches that he is responsible for, if they're going to grow, then all the hypocrisy must be rooted out and destroyed because it is a shame on the pure name of the Lord Jesus Christ for us to say one thing and live another way. We are concerned for the glory of God. And secondly, that those who are going through trials of many kinds, be it physical or, or mental or spiritual trials, they must be shielded and prayed for and loved with the most exquisite tenderness. So James is saying in this letter that we really do not understand Jesus until these two things are part of, uh, of our lives, that they are perfectly married together, this sense of a, a desire to see that hypocrisy rooted out, but that also that sense of loving and caring for one another. And we will not begin to live the Christian life consistently until there's a radical hostility to our hypocrisy and false piety, uh, a radical hostility for the false use of our tongue or the radical hostility to uh, me not embracing those who are marginalized. Or, And at the same time, there must be an opening, welcoming arms to those that are poor and needy and afflicted and struggling and tempted. That is the combination that we can't find anywhere else. And that's part of that sense of consistent Christian living. And behind that, we need to understand as James gives these commands, is all the theology of Scripture, all the sense that we cannot do these things in and of ourselves, but we can only come as we give ourselves to the, the Lord Jesus Christ and as we see his work in our lives. And so... This morning, I want to encourage you as we come to this book of James and just sort of have briefly looked at this as a sort of a glance or an introduction that, that you make it your prayer 
that the Lord would work in your heart, that the Lord would work in my heart and our heart as a church, uh, that we would see clearly and understand and walk with him, that we might uh, grow uh, in our uh, reliance and our trust in him, that we might see ourselves as we are in him and that he might be glorified in our midst. Amen. Let's uh, just have a time of, of silence and prayer and meditation as we reflect upon the word that we've heard preached this morning. Oh Lord, our God, we, we thank you for uh, your word and specifically for the book of James. God, I pray that you would um, instill in us as a congregation <coughs> that tough-mindedness towards Satan and sin. Lord, may it be our, our, heart, our heart's cry and prayer that you would deal with our hearts in such a way to root out the hypocrisy or that you would bring about in our lives that sense of Christian consistency to walk with you and trust in you. Lord, that even in the times when we are tempted and when we go through the trials, when we experience the difficulties of our life, that it would just be our first instinct to turn to you. Lord, knowing that you are good. But Father, I also pray that we would have a very real sense of tender-mindedness towards one another, a patience towards each other's sins, not assuming uh, ill motives in one another when others sin against us. But Lord, may we, knowing our own struggle with sin and, and your wonderful grace that you have shown to us, may we be compassionate towards one another, uh, sympathetic, Lord, reaching out to one another to help each other, not attacking each other, not shooting our wounded, not doing the many things that we oftentimes uh, comes as such an instinct. Lord, help us not to defend our own hurt, but Lord, help us to love others as you have loved us. We thank you, O oh God, and we, we pray these things in your name. Amen.